Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time to let it roll. The podcast about how and why popular music happens with host Nate Wilcox. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Nate is joined by author Joe Nick Potosky for the first of three episodes discussing his biography of Willie Nelson, An Epic Life. In this episode, Joe Nick tells us how a country boy from Abbott, Texas, grew into a hardcore honky-tonk hero, playing gigs from San Antonio to Portland, Oregon, honing his skills as a singing radio DJ and selling everything from encyclopedias to classic songs for as little as $50 each. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll. This is your host, Nate Wilcox, and today I'm very excited to be joined by Joe Nick Potosky, the author of Willie Nelson, An Epic Life. Mr. Potosky, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. It's uh, a little bit eccentric that we uh, interview people about books that they published 10 years ago, but I appreciate you taking the time uh, to help us put together the historical record here. Well, you know, when, when you take on a subject like Willie Nelson and write over 500 pages, you just kind of accept the fact uh, this is part of your life. And it is for the rest of my life. It's part of my life. I enjoy talking about Willie. And I really enjoyed getting to examine his life, looking at, looking at it every which way and still coming out afterwards feeling like, you know, this cat's pretty cool. Uh, I, not many people will, will affect you that way. But Willie... Willie is that exception. Yeah, he's something special, and I think you summed it up pretty well in your author's note when you said, I can now safely say that no single public person living in the 20th or 21st century defines Texas or Texans better than Willie Hugh Nelson. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Why does Willie, uh, what is it about Willie that sums up Texas so well? Well, start with music, that music really is, you know, it's, it's, kind of the uh, the foundation of our cultural fabric. I mean, we express ourselves in Texas many different ways, but storytelling in song is a, a craft, a, uh, a means of communication that Texans tend to do better than other people. And I don't know if it goes to, you know, sitting around the campfire telling stories or the old uh, Texas-Mexican tradition of the corrido, but songs have always been important and songsters have always been important in Texas. So that's that's really the basic part. No single person defines Texas music like Willie, 
But you start looking at the qualities of what makes Texans Texans, and Texans are kind of a hard-headed lot. Uh, they're very determined, uh, very individualistic, tend to stand out in a crowd, uh, whether it's the way we talk or the way we present ourselves. Uh, and then, then there's this real contrarian streak I, I look at that uh, Texans make their own way. We always have, sometimes it's not necessarily a positive uh, attribute. Sometimes it can be in, uh, attributed or interpreted as a negative, but it's something that uh, we're just different and and we're distinctive and we stand out. Willie is all that and more. And I really don't think when you think of Texans as a people or Texas as a distinct place, there's there's not another person that comes close to epitomizing what this place is all about. So were you surprised at all uh, to Willie's response to the alleged fans who are angry with his doing a fundraiser for Beto O'Rourke in the political campaign this season? That is the biggest lo- load of horse shit that I've encountered in such a long time, because if you know Willie Nelson, you better know where he stands. I mean, going back to uh, uh, the establishment of Farm Aid and, and you know, championing the, the small family farmer. Uh, <laughs> go back to the presidential campaigns of Dennis Kucinich. Willie was one of the few people to endorse Dennis Kucinich, and he was always endorsing Kinky Friedman for whatever race he was running in. Uh, he helped the Democrats uh, back when there was a big legislative battle and a coup, basically. The Republicans were trying to take over the legislature, and the uh, the Democrats left the state so they couldn't get a vote. They've changed the law since. And Willie helped the Democrats when they were out of st- uh, state. He, he sent them bandanas. He, he voiced his support. Willie has been consistent in his political uh, viewpoint and his support of Beto is just, it's right in line with the consistency of that. That pushback was like, this is, this is the Russian troll Republicans at their worst, that they made an issue out of this. It ain't an issue in Texas. If you, if you thought Willie was, was love the Republican right wingers and you've been loving his music all the time, you haven't been paying attention. I mean, it's, it, Again, this was a non-issue, uh, and it was like it, it was a bunch of horse shit. That's all I can describe it as. I couldn't put it better myself. And let's go back all the way to the beginning of Willie Nelson as a performer. You tell a great story about his first time uh, reciting a poem in front of an audience and how he earned the nickname Booger Red. Can you, can you yeah. elaborate on that one a little bit? <laughs> It, it, it was a story and it was much told. I, I, I got it from people in town as well as uh, Sister Bobby, his older sister, and, and other folks. But uh, uh, he was a precocious child and at the age of, I think, three or four, recited a poem uh, at a Sunday picnic. And uh, as he was reciting, he picked his nose and it, and, and it bled and he kept wiping his shoulder his, you know, his, his nose on his sleeve. So he was booger red. He also had red hair. Uh, but the story was all about how he stood up and recited this poem. And really, the idea of, of performing really sunk in that first time. 
that he saw the response, what, you know, people were paying attention to him and listening to him recite and, and, you know, they applauded, they liked what they heard. They, they cheered him and, you know, he got a positive response. Everybody, Hey, patting him on the back. Well, this was the seed in his, that planted in his mind that kind of led him down the path, his first performance. And it is something that's been consistent all the way through his life and to the point of, you know, his 85 years, uh, he loves nothing so much as to be people sitting around with him and watching him and listening to him. He loves performing and he performs, he performs on his bus, just like a handful of people. He'll play a new song. He loves that. And I really am convinced that the day that he can no longer perform you can just start the stopwatch because his, his, his time on this earth is going to be very limited. He is doing what the grandparents that raised his sister Bobby and him to do, to make music. They were, they were brought up in music and, and, and encouraged in music. And in fact, even in, you know, at elementary school, at, at, at Abbott Elementary in Abbott, Texas, all the kids knew that if there was a break time or there's any kind of entertainment, it was going to be Bobby and Willie. We're going to play for them. So what Willie is doing today, you know, riding down the highway on a honeysuckle rose and playing all these gigs like crazy, even at this age is what he and his sister were brought up to do. So I just think it's, uh, <laughs> you know, not many people actually achieve that in life where, where they're raised to do something. And not only did they do it, but, they embrace it and they love it and uh, to the extent that Willie does. And tell us a little bit more about his sister, Bobby. She's a keyboard player. She's a little bit older than him and she's been playing with him for decades. Is she still playing with him? Uh, little sister, Bobby, as he introduces her on stage is actually two years older than Willie. And she is the linchpin of that family band. As far as I'm concerned, she is the one that makes it all go round. Uh, and she's, she's really the rock, although you meet her in person, Bobby is very quiet, very soft-spoken, but she's the one that learned music before Willie, and then she, she mastered the piano uh, before Willie mastered the guitar and was playing it in church, uh, and it's been always there. The interesting thing is, is in the 1950s, when Willie s s struck out to try to you know, make his name in music, he, he left Abbott. He went first to the nearest small, uh, large town, Waco. He went down to San Antonio. He went up to Fort Worth, went out to Portland, uh, Oregon, and Vancouver, Washington, came back to Fort Worth, went to Houston. All this is before he goes to Nashville, where he's quote-unquote discovered. And during this period of time, Bobby's kind of the responsible one. She's not playing in the band, but she has used her knowledge of music to make a living. She, she does demos of Hammond organs in Fort Worth, Texas. And, uh, and she works for the Hammond organ company showing people how easy it is to play organ and you should buy one and put one in your own home. And she was doing this at cafeterias and at, at rodeos and exhibits. And she was the one that wandered down to Austin first while Willie's still doing all this moving around uh, Bobby came down to Austin in the early sixties, demoing Hammond organs. And so when Willie finally 
came to Texas after his house burned down in Nashville. He went to Bandera first with all his band, and they they lived at a, an abandoned dude ranch and played golf and dropped acid, and 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 developed all kinds of interesting ideas while playing uh, Flores Store in Lotus near San Antonio. Well, all during this time, Bobby was kind of like a lounge act in Austin, and um, you know she was a favorite of Coach Daryl Royal of the University of Texas Longhorns, who would, would later become best friends with Willie. Uh, so Bobby led the way very quietly, and the only reason Willie wound up in Austin was because Bobby was already there, and uh, coming to visit her. He discovered the Armadillo World Headquarters, discovered a lot of music, and Willie and his then-wife, Connie, decided not to move to Houston, where they had planned to relocate, but let's try this Austin out, and it made all the difference in the world, and shortly after the family band started, when Willie started establishing himself in Austin, one of the first things he did was ask his sister Bobby to join his band. And that's when it really was literally the family band. And the band quickly expanded. It became, at one point, there were two drummers. Rex Ludwig uh, uh, was playing along with Paul English and two bass players, B. Spears and Chris uh, Etheridge. And that band, when Bobby joined about that time, was not playing country music anymore. They could play country, but they were basically a jam band. They were doing what the Allman Brothers and the Grateful Dead were doing. They were taking a song and stretching out a three-minute song to 20-minute jams. And Bobby was part of that. Bobby, the fact that she's there today, and the fact the only member of Willie's band that rides with him on Honeysuckle Rose is Bobby Nelson, tells you all you need to know about that relationship. Of all of Willie's relationships, of all the people that he's known over over time, that is by far the tightest and and the deepest relationship. Awesome, and uh, yeah, uh, I really knew very little about Bobby Nelson before I read this book, and it's very clear that she's the alter ego of Willie Nelson, much more than Waylon Jennings or even Paul English. And I'm oh, yeah. glad you gave her her proper. Well, let's go back to Abbott a little bit and his his primary influences. You you talk about you know pretty classic story from that part point in time of a musician getting to start with the Sears catalog guitar uh-huh. that his grandparents bought him and yeah. going to the cowboy movies and listening to Bob Wills. Would you say those three things are pretty much the key? Yeah. Well, you know the other key I, I would say is is the county line because he grew up in a dry county which, you know, in the South and Texas, that means you can't buy beer, wine, alcohol. Uh, but he was within like a couple miles of the county line uh, that led to McLennan County and the town of West. And West was, he grew up in a Abbott's Protestant. He had a Baptist church, a Methodist church, and I think a Church of Christ church. And it was dry, very, very Protestant. But you cross the line, and it's Catholic, and it's Czech, and it's German, and so they not only go to church, but they drink beer, and and they play music. And right across the county line are beer joints, and Willie discovered them at a very early age, and, uh, you know, the proprietors let let this kid wander in. He loved, you know, there was a jukebox in these places, 
He loved what a jukebox could do. The radio had a huge influence when the family bought a radio and they started listening to music from far away. So it's all these elements were really kind of conspiring. I mean, music was in the air. Music was in the air at home because uh, Willie's parents, basically six months after Willie was born, his mother left. She'd come down at the age of 16 from Arkansas, marrying her husband, Ira at the age of 16. And, and Merle had no people in Texas. She was from Arkansas. She hit the road six months after Willie was born. So there's your wanted list right there. And his dad, Ira, kind of just, he wandered off. He was in and out. The grandparents were the responsible people in the <laughs> familiar story here. Uh, they were the responsible ones. And uh, Ira went off to Fort Worth and became a mechanic. He'd be in and out and he he would play music sometimes and Willie would join him. But the grandparents were back in Arkansas were singing school teachers. They would go to communities, rural communities, and basically move in for a week or two and teach the community how to sing using shape notes, which meant you didn't have to be literate to learn how to learn music, read music. Hand signals were basic. This is an old, uh, uh, an American music tradition of learning music. Uh, uh, shape notes, sacred heart singing is all kind of related in the same thing. They would go into uh, community, uh, go in the schoolhouse, teach everybody to sing. And after a week or two, they would get paid and chickens and, and livestock and food and sometimes even money. So they brought that knowledge with them down to Texas and they taught their their grandkids. And Bobby in particular went a lot to the nearby town of Hillsborough to singing conventions. This is all very religious, the, the sacred. And Willie would sometimes tag along. And of course at the Abbott Methodist church, it was nothing but music. I mean, he, Willie watched his sister, uh, play piano and, and, and lead the congregation, learn how to play piano. And pretty soon, as soon as he mastered guitar, he did that. But that's only one half of the proposition because in Texas, definitely, uh, it's the, the mastery of music is basically understanding both the sacred and the profane. And I think Willie embraced it before Bobby did by hanging out in the beer joints and then hooking up with a Czech family that happened to live in Abbott. They did not, they came from West, but they didn't live in West, which was 10 miles away. Uh, they lived in Abbott and John Raycheck was his name. And he had a family band. I think they had 10 pieces in that band and all the family played music. And you got to understand Czech music in Texas uh, meant a lot of brass, uh, horn, uh, trumpets, saxophones, all these other, other instruments. And that basically carried uh, what we call text check music, which is based on the polka. Uh, and this kid that their neighbor kid that had a guitar and loved music basically wormed his way in. Uh, Willie Nelson played guitar and the John Raycheck band, which you've got to understand in that context, there's no way you could hear that kid play guitar because there was so much brass blaring. But anyhow, the, the Raycheck family took to Willie and when he got paid for playing with the family band at a gig and discovered that the $5 he received to play was more than he would make in a day picking cotton out in the pot in the cotton field, that's the day he decided he was going to quit picking cotton 
and devote his life to music. And this is a common story in Texas that uh, I've talked to people like little Joe Hernandez, the father of Tejano music and Sam Samudio, Sam the Sham. Uh, both of them used music as a way of getting out of picking cotton. Now, Willie picked cotton long enough to hear blacks singing in the cotton fields and to hear Mexicans singing in the cotton fields. And that definitely made an impression on him. But the bigger impression on him was discovering, hey, this music was a lot easier than bending your back over all day and sweating in the fields and tearing your hands up with cotton bowls. And it was his way out of the cotton field. I mean, it's kind of a simple proposition. So the Raycheck band got him out of the field, and then he started hanging out in the beer joints and, and playing around, sometimes joining his dad who would sit in with bands. Uh, but certainly by the time he was a teenager, when his older sister Bobby married young and uh, married a guy named Bud Fletcher, and Bud Fletcher was, was kind of a con man and a real showman, and he started a band with Bobby because she could play piano and Willie was brought in and Bud Fletcher's band was the next big awakening because the band actually played gigs, not just in Abbott, but they played in Hillsborough and they traveled. And that's where Willie got the bug. And he was so good and such a, you know, stood out enough that he developed a, a fan club, uh, Females from junior high and high school that he knew loved to go listen uh, to the band, the Bud, Bud Fletcher's band, uh, sing and play. And they were kind of like the local version of Bob Wills and his Texas Playboys. They were a Western swing band, played a lot of the hits. They were on the radio in Hillsborough once a week. And it got to be such a big deal that Willie had a fan club at the age of 16. And not only were they fans, they made stage gear for him to perform in you're 16 years old and this stuff's coming your way. And let me tell you, it does a number on you. And Willie bought in a hundred percent. I mean, this is, this led him down the path to music and to get recognition, to be on the radio and to, have, you know, go to high school and all the kids are talking about, yeah, we heard you play that song on the radio or to go out of town and play a gig in Waco or even, Gosh, they went as far as Lano, over 100 miles to play a gig. This was, you know, this this was serious stuff. This left an imprint. And all these forces were conspiring that to determine that Billy and Bobby, their lives were meant to be in music. And uh, you're a great interview. You just wind you up and let you go. There's only one piece you 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 answered like the next four questions I have, but there's one <laughs> little piece you skipped there. We've covered, you know, precocious Willie gets his first guitar at six. He's drunk for the first time at nine. He's playing in a band uh, at ten. He's got a fan club at sixteen, but he's also a songwriter. He's got his first songbook at age ten. Tell yeah. us a little bit about Willie and the songwriting. Man, um, you know I'm. He, he told me that, you know, he loved listening to the radio. And, you know, this was the primary form of entertainment. If you didn't hear live music, at least everybody, almost everybody had a radio. The, the Nelsons were poor. And, in fact, their, you know, Abbott was not a wealthy town. It was, it was a cotton farming community, very small. 
And this was like the back end of the Great Depression. So everybody's poor. But as folks pointed out, the Nelsons, uh, you know, Willie's granddaddy was a blacksmith. And they just barely got by. They were really poor. They were so poor that the first horse Willie rode was the family cow ready. So they didn't have a whole lot to show for themselves. But music was that thing that that helped them stand out. So it it was just a matter of, of, um, I don't know, that, that, you know, it was a way to get paid. And yes, you're at a very early age because Willie crossed the line and he'd go hang out in these honky tonks and he probably shouldn't have, but he was able to get drunk at a very early age, uh, feel great remorse, but that didn't stop him from doing it again. I don't think he was extremely wild as a teenager, but you know, living a rural life in Texas at that time, you had to be creative enough to make your own fun. And you know, whether it was smoking grapevine, uh, <laughs> which was at least you could find grapevine, and it was uh, wasn't like as, as dangerous, I guess, as smoking cigarettes or getting loaded, uh, getting drunk at a very early age. This is what kids did. This is how you found your way through the world. And certainly, if you're playing in a band in high school, you are exposed to this underbelly of life that you know isn't talked about in polite company. And Willie's become pretty skilled at it at an early age. At at the age of 12, he writes his first songbook, and it's by hand. It's it's uh, at the Whitliff Collections at Texas State University, where my archive is in San Marcos. And I love looking at that. They they have a uh, they made a copy of it that you can handle and and look at. And it's so cool because. Willie has obviously taken a lot of time practicing spelling, autographing his name, you know, doing an autograph. And he writes it in a way with lariat loops, like a, you know, like a cowboy star. And you cannot underestimate the power of cowboy movies, which was six miles from west to the movie theater in Hillsborough. And you could take the inner urban, which was a trolley. You could jump on the back and go for free. Or maybe someone was driving a car there. But Willie was, you know, a regular of the Saturday uh, picture shows. Gene, Gene Autry was a hero of, of his. During the war bond effort, he convinced his family, and again, his family was terribly poor, to buy a war bond because if they bought a war bond at the picture show, he could get an autograph in exchange from uh, cowboy movie star Johnny Mac Brown, and Willie got that. And I'll jump ahead later in life. Willie became best friends with Gene Autry, and Sister Bobby told me a story just when I was working on this book, right around 2007. Willie uh, and Willie Nelson and the family band played for three nights at the Hollywood Bowl. Gene Autry had passed, but Mrs. Autry, his widow showed up at the bus with two pairs of jeans boots to give to Willie, one of which Willie immediately put on and he, he stuffed his, uh, his jeans inside so that you'd see the tops of the boots. And Bobby said he didn't take them off until they left LA. 
he was that nuts about it. So the the power of cowboy movie stars can't be underestimated. But then again, you know, whether it's that or is it the honky tonk or is it the Ray Check family band playing Czech music? Yes, it was all these things. And they all informed who this guy is today. Like I said, it, it's he was raised to do exactly what he's doing today. And there's one other element of his formative years that I want to bring up. His troubles with women started early in a tragic way. One of the leaders of the Willie Nelson fan club uh, passed away in a car wreck driving home from one of his shows. How did, how did that impact Willie and his relationships with women and, and his view on life? You know, I, I can't get inside his head that much to tell you precisely what he was thinking, but you know, he, this, he developed close relationships and that was probably one of the first real tragedies. And, you know, do you internalize it? Do you express it? I don't know, but I, I, I do know that the fact that his mom left so early and, you know, he and his sister grew up, you know, being raised by grandparents when most of the kids in Abbott had a mom and a dad and they were around. So he already knew, he knew some heartbreak and, and, um, but he internalized it. I mean, I don't, I don't see that he ever, really let it eat him up. But um, uh, with the fan club, he had admirers. I mean, that was something else. It was like he didn't have to do anything but get up there and play. And, you know, these girls are looking at him and they come to gigs and, and they're sweet on him. And then, you know, to have one that you really take after die like that, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of sucking up to do. And, yes, you know, you got to, you know, just suck it up and, and tighten your belt and go forward. And I think that was that was one of the first big events for him as a as a um, a young man where he had to deal with with tragedy and it it's always there. You know, some people choose to wallow in it or focus on it and and it defines their life. And there's a real uh <laughs> Despite sadness, and think of one of Willie's first songs, The Storm Has Just Begun. I mean, you know, he loved sad songs, and he knew the power of sad songs. But I don't think he always wallowed in them. He wasn't just, it, it wasn't all honky-tonk heartbreak. Although I will say that uh, uh, among the first batch of songs that came out when he was writing in Fort Worth and, and in Houston and then in Nashville, uh, you know, they're, they're terribly sad songs. Uh, although, you know, nightlife, funny how time slips away. Uh, uh, you know, hello walls. These, these are all, they're not happy songs. <laughs> although I gotta say hello walls has the happiest skip along beat for a song about loneliness that I can think of. So I don't know that, uh, maybe he chose then when he started writing to figure out a way to channel that. Because there's a lot of sadness in that life. Uh, uh, By the time he starts writing, his his first marriage is already on the skids. He's moved around. 
uh, he's broke. He can't seem to find stability in his life, and uh, and he's desperate. And there's two things before we get him to Nashville in 1960. I mean, this is a, a guy, you know, in his 20s and the 50s, working hard on music that whole time and not making a lot of ground. But he's got two other professions that he follows. One is a DJ and one is as a, a salesman selling encyclopedias and other things. What are the two things that you think he learned from those professions that he brought to his musical career? Everything. I mean... Understand when he started DJing, he got a he got a gig first in uh, Pleasanton, outside of uh, San Antonio. When he would he had moved there, trying to make it as a musician, and he used that as his soapbox. That when he wasn't on the air, he was recording his first demos, which he sent to Sarge Records in Luling, Texas, and they they never responded until he made it big as a star, and then they released his his demo tapes. But he learned. Uh, a lot of presentation skills and it gave him uh, you know he's in the world of music he was playing records by the time he moved to Fort Worth following his father who and his sister who were living up there after he left San Antonio uh, uh, the, the big deal on the radio is he started playing along to the songs he would play records and he'd play his guitar he'd open his mic and he would play along with it and then he would sing with it uh, which was a new thing, and it kind of got him, it made him a big deal on the radio in Fort Worth, and that's where he first met Paul English and uh, his older brother Oliver, and uh, first time he met Paul Buskirk was through that. So radio was key, and to this day, it isn't just Willie's Roadhouse on Sirius XM. He, he is keenly aware of radio, loves to work radio, is cognizant of the power of radio, as far as pushing out his kind of music. Now that's half of it. The other half, the salesman part, it doesn't matter what he's selling. It really doesn't. He sold vacuum cleaners. He sold Bibles. He sold whatever he could sell. But what that taught him was the power of salesmanship. And really, I, and I use this word as a positive, not a negative, is it taught him, it, it, it really uh, burnished his skills in doing the con, winning people's confidence, walking up to strangers and getting their attention and then trying to sell them a product. That's not easy. So you have to meet strangers, get them to listen to you and win their confidence. Well, you know, Willie was pretty good enough to do that, that he could sell vacuum cleaners and Bibles and whatnot. He was, he was pretty good at it. So whenever he needed money to get by that's what he did he could walk up to door uh, to strangers and knock on their door and do that and i remember when he got in trouble with uh, the irs in the 1980s and he had this huge uh tax bill that he had to work off and <clears throat> almost lost everything at that time he said well you know i'm going to put out this record maybe that'll knock off some of the the debt but <clears throat> if everything else fails i'll just walk up and down uh, streets and knock on every door. And, and if I can get him to open up the door, I'll sing him a song and see if I can make money. And, and he really believed that. And I really think, you know, that was the way he looked at life. Sure. It was a lot more serious and there were a lot more people dependent on him and the debt's a terrible thing. And it was, the truth is it wasn't him. He had hired some pretty bad uh, accountants at a major 
international accounting firm. And what people don't realize is that debt was finally settled when the accounting firm agreed to accept culpability and they had an out-of-court settlement that they couldn't talk about. But, yeah, that, you know, it all goes back to, to selling as far as I'm concerned. And there's – Willie. One, go ahead. Wrap it up. That when, every time Willie walks out onto a stage and he does this to this day, he scans it and makes eye contact with, you know, as many people as he can. So there is a scattering of people up close to the stage that are all saying, he looked at me. He's singing to me before he even utters a note. And that's part of the con. I mean, that's part of the salesmanship. He'll lock eyes to you. He'll get your attention. Then he'll move on and get other people's attention. But that's a skill of salesmanship. And he's always selling. It was really great when I delivered the book to him when it was finished. And I found him on his bus <laughs> sleeping taking a nap one afternoon and he, you know, he was at his place in, uh, outside of Austin. He has a house there, but when he really gets homesick, he likes sleeping on the bus. And, uh, shortly afterwards I was hanging out at like Texas and he's, you know, we're talking about the book and all that, but he wanted to show me this new thing. This guy was, had this product that he was endorsing called Watt air. And it was basically taking humidity and making it into water a way of, of, you know, transforming humidity in the water. And I don't know about the process. I don't know about the efficacy of it, to be honest with you. But when Willie showed me the product, it was like I was watching the salesman. It didn't matter what he was selling. And it kind of didn't matter what he was selling. He got everybody's attention that was standing around, showed them how it worked, showed them how it would change your life. And I thought, damn, you know, how many times has he been done this in his life? So it was great to watch him sell something other than himself. And he's really good at it. And you mentioned the term con a couple times. And there's a, and, and you also mentioned Paul English, who comes into his life around this time, although he won't join his band until 1966. But Paul English is sort of the flip side of that underworld. I mean, you know, if, if Willie's mastering the grift or the con, Paul English is, is kind of the muscle behind the scenes. What was Paul English doing? For a living when Willie first met yeah, him. Paul, Paul was the, uh, his kind of con was the convict. Uh, he was a, a character, as they call him in Fort Worth, an underworld character. And when Willie met him, it was really because of his older brother, Oliver, who's probably one of the hotshot guitarists in Fort Worth at that time, which is saying a lot. Uh, Paul was the younger brother that tagged along and tried to play drums and really couldn't. Uh, he was a hustler. He's a street hustler. Uh, and he ran all kinds of uh, games and cons in action. Uh, he was a pimp. He ran prostitutes. He learned pretty quickly that, you know, stealing, doing outright theft was not a good idea because he actually did a little bit of time. And he learned while he was doing time, he learned how to play chess at least. But he also learned, you know, you never do crimes of property. You know, gambling, that's okay. Uh, running whores, that's okay. You're going to get hit with a fine and all that. You're not going to get hit with serious prison time. And But he learned this early on. And uh, he, he was also a master leather tooler. He, he learned how to tool leather. But he was, the criminal arts attracted him as a teenager. He was a real tough guy. 
uh, he knew how to fight. Uh, he knew how to threaten and intimidate. And this was kind of a golden era of, uh, of crime in Fort Worth where they called, called it the little Chicago. And, you know, the mob was not operating in Texas because the local gangsters were too damn tough for the mob of Chicago or New Orleans. They stayed away. And, but it, and it was kind of like these guys ran, they, they operated used car lots. That was a good front. But there were a lot of bombings. There was a, the strip, the Jacksboro Highway, which was just whatever you want, you could get. So it was like it was bars and, and gut bucket uh, honky tonks. But it was also, you know, high dollar illegal gambling casinos. Uh, it was houses of prostitution. The Jacksboro Highway, they call it Thunder Road before there was a Thunder Road. And Paul English was part of that world. So once he met Willie and got to play with him a couple times in the mid fifties while Willie was a DJ and uh, he, he was tagging along with his brother, Oliver, and he got to play some gigs with Willie actually, but they became friends. And every time Willie, once he left Fort Worth and then he went to Houston and then Nashville, every time Willie would come back to Fort Worth, you know, Paul was there and Paul would support him. Paul went so far as to basically construct an eight track cassette player before there were such a things just so he could hear Willie's music in his car. Uh, that's the kind of thing it was. And Paul was actually making a pretty good living, uh, such a good living that uh, he moved operations to Dallas and down to Houston and they stayed in touch. Uh, and so Paul was many times underwriting Willie's efforts. Willie would show up, Nashville songwriter with a band and barely, you know, be able to get by playing gigs. And Paul was, was, was helping his, his friend out to the point that in 66, uh, Willie was looking for a, a, a drummer that he knew, uh, Tommy Rosnowski and, uh, uh, Paul, uh, he called Paul and Paul said, why do you want Tommy? He said, I can do this. And Paul had seen Willie struggle. And it was basically he wasn't he wasn't worth a, a damn as a drummer, but you know he he knew crime and stuff, and he 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 packed guns, and he'd seen how Willie was struggling, and uh, he wanted to help Willie out, and that was one of the best career moves Willie ever made because in the world of country music, you know getting paid was not a given, and if you didn't draw real well, you never knew if the club owner. Or, one of his henchmen would try to short you or not even pay you at all. So when your drummer uh, is with you when it came time to collect and your drummer's packing heat and the club owner tries to pull out a gun saying, oh, we didn't make any money, and your drummer pulls out his gun, then at least you know, you've got some negotiating to do. It's not <laughs> like you're going to get screwed. And Paul became invaluable. And it's interesting because there was there was in the seventies when Willie blew up. Uh, there was really a sense, and and Willie's band and Waylon's band were kind of friendly rivals. There was always a sense. Uh, Waylon's band looked down on on Willie's band. One is because Willie couldn't keep time, and poor B Spears had to keep up with that funky time that only Willie seemed to know what the rhythm was. But also, Paul English couldn't play, play drums. And, you know, that's, you know, they said that was one reason Rex, Rex Ludwig uh, joined the band was added. And 
Paul was never a great drummer, but he was Willie's best friend, and he remains Willie's literal back. When you see Willie playing on stage, that guy watching his back on stage is Paul English. And I don't care if Paul is as old as Willie is and maybe, you know, getting around real slow. I would not utter a foul word to that man because a dollar to a dime, I bet you, he's packing heat and he's ready to use it. <laughs> and we've we've got a little bit ahead of the tale I want to tell with Paul English joining the band in 66. In the 50s, before Willie goes to Nashville, he's, he cuts a few records. He cuts some with a company named Starday Records. What's the story with that? And Why didn't Willie click on records before he went to Nashville? <laughs> well, no, actually, he was cutting for D uh, Records, uh, which oh. was part of this star. Uh-huh. It was Pappy Daly's empire. Uh, and uh, Willie had been wanting to record since he hit San Antonio in 53 and 54. And... Uh, Sarge Records didn't want to hear anything. When he was in Portland uh, and on the radio in Vancouver, Washington, on KVAN, he did make a record, which he put out on the Willie Nelson label that he played as a disc jockey. Uh, And, you know, he sold records on on the radio and made a little bit of money. But it didn't get serious till he came to Fort Worth again. He returned uh, uh, from, from Portland, Vancouver, and uh, he was on his way to Nashville. His car broke down. He's back in Fort Worth. But he started recording for D Records out of Houston. He was on a, uh, a, a live kind of Opry-type show in Fort Worth called the Cowtown Hoedown, which was from the Majestic Theater every Saturday night. And it was broadcast live uh, locally and also on border radio. They did a, a delayed broadcast. But he scored a deal with, with D Records, and he made a couple records uh, they didn't really do anything. And they were kind of like, eh, you know, country ballads, okay. Uh, but not all that. And he left Fort Worth and went to Houston because that's where D Records was. There was a lot of radio there. And he basically scored a, a gig on a radio station, got a gig in a band uh, 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 that he just kind of lucked into through his friend, uh, through Larry Butler, who uh, had the house band at the Esquire Club, so he landed a gig there. And he he kept recording. And he did some sessions uh, with his friend Paul Buskirk, who he knew in Dallas, in Fort Worth, who Paul had run, uh, had moved to Pasadena, had a music store. So Willie was getting part-time work teaching guitar at Paul's music store. And he would read a Mel, Mel Bay uh, How to Play Guitar book and then try to translate the, the lesson to the student the next day. Willie wasn't a very good teacher. But he got at this, you know, a DJ gig. He was hustling, doing whatever he could. And he was also recording. And he did some recordings at uh, uh, Gold Star Studios, which is where Lightning Hopkins recorded, uh, the Big Bopper recorded Chantilly Life Storage Studio, and scored some time there with under Paul Buskirk's uh, direction. And Paul Buskirk brought along a pretty hot shot steel guitar player named Herb Remington played with Bob Wills, Texas Playboys. And they did some recordings. And among those recordings they did was a song that Willie had written, which was unlike the other songs he was writing. It was a, a, a beautiful blues song and really pensive, uh, soulful, a song called nightlife. Ain't no good life, but it's my life. And 
it was so bluesy that H.W. Pappy Daly, the head of D Records and Star Day Records, refused to put it out. That's too bluesy. And, you know, I can't I can't work a song like this. And Willie got so pissed off, and this is this is the hard headed Willie here, that the the track was released uh, on another label, Bel Air Records. Uh, Willie got it released, and it was uh, under the uh, the band was Paul Buskirk and his Little Men, featuring Hugh Nelson. Hugh being Willie Hugh Nelson's middle name, and that record did get out, and it got a little bit of airplay. And in fact, it got on on border radio because uh, Willie had been doing some border radio stuff with a guy named Uncle Hank Craig in, in Fort Worth. And XCG would uh, not only broadcast the Cowtown Hoedown, they started playing some Willie records. So by the time Willie hit Nashville in 1960, that song kind of already preceded him. It was getting a little bit of airplay. And people knew about it, even if Pappy Daly didn't like it. But Willie was hard-headed enough that he didn't care whether Pappy was going to release it or not. And in fact, D Records was not, it, it was, uh, it wasn't what he was after. And and he did do a song, wrote a song that, he started selling songs for cheap in Houston. 50, 50 bucks a pop, maybe 150 if he's lucky. And he sold a song to Claude Gray, who was a country singer. And Claude Gray had a hit, country hit with a song that Willie wrote, Although it says Claude Gray wrote the song, a song called Family Bible is a top 10 country hit. By the time Willie's uh, anxious, he's still broke. Larry Butler's gig isn't paying enough. The DJ gig falls apart. Uh, Pappy Daly's not releasing his product. So the one thing he's got going is Claude Gray's Family Bible. Well, Claude Gray goes over to Meridian, Mississippi, where he's got a DJ gig. And Willie follows Claude to Meridian, thinking he can get a job on the radio there. And Claude tries to help him out, but no dice. And so, out of options, Willie leaves Meridian and goes to Nashville and, and, and arrives. I want to jump in because you you tell a story back when he was in Portland. He had already been told about Nashville by somebody. Uh, oh yeah, who's when, a well, pretty well known songwriter in, herself. Okay, when Willie's in Portland. And he's on KVAN. He's got this single that he's recorded. Uh, uh, no Place for Me with the Flip is Lumberjack, which is a, a Leon Payne song. Very appropriate for the Pacific Northwest. Willie knows his audience. Uh, and promo person comes in promoting the Hank Snow Show. A uh, woman's name is, is May Axton. Uh, May Axton is a songwriter and a promotions person. And uh, uh, May is a pretty talented uh, person. And, and here she is plugging a Hank, Hank Snow uh, package show that's coming through the Pacific Northwest. And Willie says, would you just hold on? Can I play a song for you? Well, he plays a suite of songs for May at the radio station. And she says, what are you doing here in Portland? Well, the reason Willie's in Portland is his mom's there. He's followed his dad to Fort Worth. And then after that gig falls apart, he follows his mom, who's a barkeep in Portland. And that's how he winds up in uh, Portland on the air in Vancouver, Washington. That's what I'm doing here, Ms. Axton. 
she said, well, if you want to make it, get yourself to Nashville. Go on, get. And Willie takes her advice, 1958, gets in his car and goes as far as Springfield, Missouri, and where his friend uh, Billy Walker is on the Ozark Jubilee, which is another Opry-type live music show on Saturday nights. And Billy tries to get him on the Ozark uh, uh, Jamboree. It's Ozark Jamboree, I'm sorry. Uh, but he, he doesn't cut the audition. And that's when Willie goes back to Fort Worth uh, and kind of regathers gathers his forces there, then goes to Houston, stops off in Meridian briefly, and winds up, uh, just comes in on, on fumes into Nashville with nothing going for him except Claude Gray's Family Bible and that song Nightlife, which happens to be on the jukebox at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge when he gets there. And and tell us a little bit about the legendary Tootsie's Orchid Lounge and, and the kind of people that Willie met and associated with there. Well, Willie went to where songwriters go in Nashville at the time, which was this honky-tonk on Broadway called Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. And it was just it's a honky-tonk, a beer joint. Downtown Nashville. No big deal. But it was also where songwriters like to sit in a circle upstairs in the back and swap songs, play songs for one another. And Willie caught wind of that pretty quickly uh, and started showing up. And uh, wormed, when he wormed his way into the song circle, he's sitting there with a handful of other people, plays a song, and... Uh, so there's a songwriter, pretty well-known guy named Hank Cochran, who's uh, also working for Ray Price and his publishing company, uh, Pamper Music. He's a song plugger as well as a songwriter. And well, he plays a song. Hank says, who, who wrote that? I did. They pass the guitar around, comes to Willie's turn again, plays a song. Who wrote that? I did. And Hank's <laughs> paying attention. And it's not just, you know, this guy writes some pretty good songs. Well, after a while, Hank is putting two and two together and decides to forego his $50 a week uh, salary increase at Pamper Music and offer that increase to Willie Nelson. How would you like to write songs for Pamper Music and Ray Price? It's like, <laughs> that is like the world opens up to Willie Nelson. And Hank, Likes Willie enough, he, he takes him and shows him pamper music in Goodlitzville, right outside of Nashville, and then drives Willie home uh, to where this trailer park where Willie lives has found a place. And when Hank drops him off, he starts laughing. And it's it's a run-down, broke-down trailer park. And Hank starts laughing. And Willie is offended, you know, laughing at his station in life, his poverty. And he said, well, because that's where I lived when I got to Nashville. And, and that's where old Roger Miller lived when I, he got to Nashville. And all of a sudden, the song Trailers for Sale or Rent, Rooms to Let 50 Cents, came into vivid focus. That this is where struggling songwriters arriving to Nashville 
happened to park when they got there. And, and but the break, go ahead. I just you got to uh, tip your hat to to God or somebody. I mean the, the the woman who writes Heartbreak Hotel tells him to go to Nashville. He goes to Nashville and he moves into Hank Conkren and Roger Miller's former trailer. I mean, there's clearly pixie dust being sprinkled around willy nilly here. Although, and look, this trailer park would not—you would no one would would say pixie dust there. It was part of the timing and the happenstance. But th- this, you know, it's it's struggling. To, I mean, he's got a wife. Uh, he, he he's got a kid. And uh, he, he's got three kids, and and not until he gets that fifty dollars a week does he have any stability. When he gets that, that stability, and then uh, lo and behold, he signs on through happenstance because of pampered music. He signs on as a Cherokee cowboy with probably the best dance band out of Texas, Ray Price and his Cherokee Cowboys, and Willie all of a sudden has the world of country music opened to him. He gets to go on the road wearing nudie suits, but seeing what life's like, you know, playing guitar behind a guy like uh, Ray Price. And, you know, it's a good life. And if not for Willie getting success through writing songs, which happened shortly thereafter, uh, he would have been happy being a Cherokee cowboy. And in fact, once he, he starts hitting as a songwriter, Ray Price and Farron Young, for whom Willie writes Hello Walls, which is really his first big songwriting success uh, as, as far as a cover song, they both say, why don't you get off the road and just stay here in Nashville and write songs for us? And that's when both of them learn Willie is not satisfied being a supporting musician backing up Ray Price or or writing songs for Farron Young. He wants to be Ray Price. He wants to be Farron Young. And that basically tells you the story of the next 10 years of his life. And this has been awesome, Joe Nick. And can you stay with us a little longer and tell us a little bit more about the next 10 years of Willie's life? I think we're good for a little bit longer, yeah. Awesome. So this is part one of our Willie Nelson uh interview with author Joe Nick Petoskey. We'll be back next week with part two to tell you what Willie did after he hit Nashville and starts outgrowing Nashville. Thanks for listening. Next week, Joe Nick will return to take Willie from Nashville to Austin, laying the groundwork for superstardom along the way. Be sure and subscribe to the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Podomatic, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Willie Nelson, An Epic Life, is available from Little Brown and Company and can also be found wherever fine books are sold.